Welcome to the Social Contract Day, hosted and created by me, Jacqueline Courtney, a financial services compliance professional. This is the podcast where we look at current affairs to question the state of the social contract right now, and whether we, the people, have given government, business, or the mysterious powers that be far too much influence. Hopefully, through this podcast, we can imagine a better, fairer, and more transparent society. So if you're new here, consider subscribing so you can be updated whenever a new episode is released and also giving us a follow at Contract Today on Twitter. So welcome to The Social Contract Today, the podcast where we look at the state of the social contract in our world today. And welcome to this week's episode So I had um, a one week break and that was because um, the recording day fell on my birthday and my son's birthday, which happened to be on the same day. So, you know, it's it's a pretty big day in my family. So I just had to take that break, but also really wanted to digest all that was going on still. um, There's still lots of um, talk and action happening in in the wake of George Floyd's death. I I think I saw that there's been 22 consecutive days of protesting um, in some states in America. So it's been really overwhelming and loads of stuff have been happening in my professional life in terms of um, discussing these things and bringing this to the fore. So um, it's been a busy week for me, but I'm back on track this week, as you can guess from the title, uh, in dealing with the question from episode two and three. To whom does the social contract apply? In which back then I looked at race, a topic which couldn't be condensed into one episode. So I I revisited it again in episode three. And actually, before I wrap up on race, which might I say isn't exactly possible because race will undoubtedly be a topic that I revisit and touch on in some way again. Um, But I do want to say on race and on the notion of fatigue, particularly allyship fatigue, in the wake of consistent protests since the killing of George Floyd. Um, There's a a clip that I'd like to insert at this point, which speaks to the need to not give up fighting um, and and in seeking for justice and equality, though it gets tiring, we do need to continue. Many of us who support anti-racism and the Black Lives Matter movement know that without consistency, no change will or can happen. And Jacqueline E. Banks, who is the executive director of the New York City Commission on Gender Equity, expresses this point so well. Here it is. And the other thing to recognize is once we have achieved a new level, the work isn't done. I think we get lazy as a people. And and it's not just individuals. There's a psychological drain in driving change. And that energy dissipates. How do we constantly keep this moving so that we advance all peoples? So as Jacqueline says so brilliantly, um, though we may be tired, though we may be weary, until it's over, we can't stop. Now, on to gender. I hope in this episode you enjoy delving further into the social contract as we today question whether the social contract ever had women in mind 
and how this compares to the current system we have today to ask the fundamental question, to whom does the social contract apply today? So, gender. Gender, it's become a really hot topic, hasn't it, in recent years? Um, In today's world, especially, the gender and the binary nature of gender has really been called into question. Thankfully, there's been an embrace towards gender fluidity and neutrality over recent years, which has helped move us towards seeing a wider spectrum of people. Um, And so I think that's really fantastic because without representation, without seeing people, we often forget. Um, Seeing is believing, unfortunately, for, for many. And so when we see more people, we hear their voices and also those people can get access to um, equality and well so it's really important to have uh, representation to know you know what the spectrum of people is so it's been fantastic uh, that change uh, for the purposes of this conversation however I'll focus on the binary traditional setup uh, nuclear family sort of um, as man and woman to understand whether that distinction was ever even considered in the forming of the social contract. So did we even consider that there was an other to man? Um, Because when you do read up on the social contract, it does feel as though um, women aren't really involved in the conversation. And so that is how we'll be looking at it. So this week, I actually came across a brilliant chat, which in terms of its themes, covered the concept of family contract which is the implicit agreement between men and women and children and it also touches on the role of uh, employers and government and what they do um, in regards to this agreement which is still skewed in favour of men and the chat was on BBC Radio 4 Women's Hour Uh, it was entitled Equality in the Home um, and in there, in that episode, they talked about findings from research they'd been carrying out since April this year, collecting data with the help of the University of S- Sussex uh, on the coronavirus pandemic and how it's affected families. And they found that in families with a father and mother, things are very much falling down gendered lines in terms of the distribution of domestic labour and childcare. No surprises there. In terms of the default parent, that is, which parent drops other responsibilities in order to carry out childcare and other domestic duties. Again, this role was found to rest overwhelmingly with mothers. In fact, 72% of women stated that they were always the default parent. Uh, The implication here is that women are really uh, trying to juggle work and other commitments and children. Um, But this isn't to say that men don't juggle either, because as an Institute of uh, Fiscal Studies um, research found, in couples where the mother is still working and the father has been furloughed or not working during this time, he was doing half an hour more childcare a day than she was. Whereas where you had the mother not working and the father working, the mother was doing much more than just half an hour, um, as in the father's case, um, of childcare. So Again, working mums have got a real second shift, a second job almost on their hands. Um, And then according to findings uh, from the LSE, London School of Economics, nearly half of mothers with young children are experiencing 
high levels of anxiety due to the double shift of trying to combine paid work and their unpaid work. And then the Office of National Statistics has found that fathers are actually doing the highest proportion of childcare since records began. However, though this is a move in the right direction, with fathers doing more childcare than they've ever done before, they are still doing substantially less than mothers. And then the conversation, which is honestly brilliant, I'd implore you to listen to it on BBC Sounds uh, when you can. The The conversation ends with the discussing of management of parenting or emotional labour, which often falls to women. Here it is. Francine, in your couples who have made it work and are equal, how much do they manage to share remembering dental appointments, remembering somebody has to go to the doctor, remembering it's grandma's birthday or there have to be Christmas cards sent. We call the management of of parenting. And I will say that management is one of the things that is probably the most resistant to change. Even in couples that that do the the nitty-gritty work, uh, mothers often retain a lot of the mental work. Although I will say among the equal shares, it's different than among couples that are less equal. So in those couples, even when women are doing it, men are aware of it. They're aware that their wives are carrying this burden. Or in some cases, men take on a portion of that. Um, But I'd like to also respond to the class issue that you raised. Uh, In my work, I don't know if this is true in the UK, but there's a large portion of the workforce in the United States that work off shifts, you know, that work an evening shift or an overnight shift. And these are often working class couples where one parent may be working one shift and the other parent another shift. And often those couples are very equal. We have a kind of stereotype that equal sharing is an upper middle class phenomenon, but my research suggests that it is not. That in fact, uh, there are many working class couples who do share equally. And in in our in my book, Creating Equality, one of our couples in the United States is our undocumented uh, Latinx couple uh, who have very uh, low income uh, jobs. Well, Francine Deutsch, Marianne Stevenson, Ali Lacey, thank you all very much for taking part. So this conversation really made me think. Think about the social contract between men and women and how I'd like to explore that in more detail, actually, in a future episode. Because a common thread throughout this conversation was equal pay. Yes, that old chestnut, an age-old debate one which feels as though it should have been a debate we ended and solved years ago, but it's still raging on. The world over, actually, given discrepancies in pay by gender, play everywhere, play out everywhere. Men and women, although it's widely agreed that just as a basic principle of fairness, they should have the same economic opportunities in life, in life, despite progresses, despite protests, despite legislation, there is still a persistent gap in what men and women are paid. Um, And in fact, the situation is so dire that the Global Gender Gap Report of 2018 found that it would take us 202 years to close that gap. This conversation also made me think about where 
where the hell is the state in all of this? Where's government? Um, the fact that we still see inequalities suggests that we don't live in a just society. As writer and scholar uh, Shiro Opinda wrote in 2018, a society that is infested with racism and other systems of oppression is unlikely to fully adhere to the requirements that are necessary for the promotion of a just society, especially when those in power hold systems, structures and institutions that benefit the dominant group. Even though we need laws to address the inequalities many face, as Pinder also notes, when laws are in place to address inequalities, they legitimise the systems of oppressive production. So even though we have laws in place and need those laws to address the inequalities that are you know, occurring, it's really a, a, a terrible indictment of, of government that that we shouldn't need to do that at all because as she says it legitimizes the problem it means that we've allowed this problem to to go on and now unfortunately we need to put some legal writing um behind why it should stop and things shouldn't shouldn't have to get that bad where we're fighting for legislation but alas here we are um i'm sure if i asked shero opinda the question does the social contract apply to women she'd say a resounding no because as she also writes the social contract in its original formulation could not address questions of injustices against poor people blacks women homosexuals and disabled men and women because the contracting agents were able-bodied self-declared heterosexual white men this very point is why I think it's so important to explore this topic. And again, on this topic, on this point, author of the acclaimed The Sexual Contract, Carol Pateman, she corroborates this point and says that the uh, contractual agents, i.e. men and women, have been unequal subjects in the social contract from the very beginning. So I'll, I'll tell you this, as I was putting this episode together, my husband walked, walked by and um, saw what I was researching and he, he just came out with this line that I just had to include. He said, there needs to be an economic uh, quantitative study over the course of people's lives to show the real health benefit of breast milk. Uh, how, for example, that affects lifespan and, co- you know, costs the economy less in the long run. He says if if breast milk was seen to be valuable, um, because right now it's seen as having no economic benefit, uh, then the work of women would be much more appreciated because that is one of the key things a mother does when she has a baby. And essentially what he's saying is true, and I would say that because I'm his wife, but with as trying to be objective as possible. Um, I do agree. And actually, I found two brilliant TED Talks which touch on this very idea. The first was in 2016 when Katie Hind explained the tremendous benefits of breastfeeding, which she has uncovered has uncovered in her work of breast, of studying breast milk as the first superfood. Just take a listen to a brief clip from the TED Talk in which she discusses research. Recent research has shown that milk doesn't just grow the body, it fuels behavior and shapes neurodevelopment. In 2015, researchers discovered that the mixture of breast milk and baby saliva, specifically baby saliva, 
causes a chemical reaction that produces hydrogen peroxide that can kill staph and salmonella. Then there's the work of Marilyn Waring, whose unparalleled TED talk in which she connects the work of motherhood, namely breastfeeding, with um, an economic instrument such as GDP. And she explains what led her into looking at things in this way. Here it is. And then I remembered a woman who had three children under five, who was caring for her elderly parents. And nobody seemed to think that at some stage she might actually need some assistance with childcare because she wasn't in the paid workforce. And there began to be a pattern in all of these stories I was being told. And I started to ask enough questions to try and track to the core of this pattern of values that was part of all of these stories. And I found it in an economic formula called the gross domestic product, or the GDP. Most of you will have heard of it. Many of you won't have any idea what it actually means. The rules were drawn up by Western-educated men in 1953. They established a boundary of production in drawing up these rules. What they were keen to measure was everything that involved a market transaction. So on one side of the boundary, everything where there was a market exchange was counted. It doesn't matter whether the exchange is legal or illegal. Market exchange and the illegal trade in armaments, musicians, uh, drugs, endangered species, trafficking of people. All of this is great for growth, and it all counts. On the other side of the boundary of production, there was this extraordinary phrase in the rules, that the work done by the people they called non-primary producers was, quote, of little or no value. So I thought, let's see how many non-primary producers we have here today. So in the last week or so, how many of you have transported members of your household or their goods without payment? How many of you have done a bit of cleaning, a bit of vacuuming, a bit of sweeping, a bit of tidying up the kitchen? Yeah? How about going shopping for members of the household? Preparing food, cleaning up afterwards, laundry, ironing. <laughs> well, as far as economics is concerned, you were at leisure. Now, how about the women who have been pregnant and who have had children? Yes. Now, I really hate to tell you this, because it might well have been hard labor, but at that moment, you were unproductive. <laughs> and some of you may have breastfed your infant. Now, 
In the New Zealand national accounts, that's what the figures are called. That's where we get the GDP. In the New Zealand national accounts, the milk of buffalo, goats, sheep, and cows is of value, but not human breast milk. <laughs> It is the very best food on the planet. It is the very best investment that we can make in the future health and education of that child. It doesn't count at all. Whew, so I will stop there because at this rate I'll end up playing the whole talk. But I think you can see why. Like just how excellent the points that she makes she makes is or are. Um, Marilyn Waring is the real deal. If you haven't cottoned on by now, she's actually been working in this space for over 30 years. She's a New Zealander and has done everything from. Um, politics to international development to founding her own branch of feminist economics as well as working in public policy and I love that she also mentions breast milk in this way like sort of what my husband was speaking to um, and how important and only and how only women can provide it and yet how there's still this need to fight for equality um, even though improvements have made been made in the lives of women around the world There were still massive inequalities in so many areas of life. And it begs the question, why do we continue to base public policy on GDP? In doing so, our economy is fundamentally flawed in that the largest sector of the economy, i.e. the role of parenthood, caring for elderly parents, caring for our children with unique needs, in all the general to and froing and, you know, going back and forth and doing things that are unpaid, in our day-to-day -day lives, when that is when unpaid labour takes place. But all that work and time and energy is completely unproductive and completely unaccounted for. And the fact that wearing, uh, the fact that raising the next generation is seen as unproductive and the fact that caring for an elderly relative who may otherwise have been cared for in an, in an expensive private nursing home is seen as unproductive And the fact that even when people engage in social care work that is paid, which is mostly women doing these roles, they're normally grossly underpaid. And that's all a travesty. All of those things are a terrible tra travesty and a farce. And the actions or lack thereof of our state um, is, uh, is implicated. It's deeply concerning that depending on the type of occupation also that a woman chooses, as I mentioned, social care work is predominantly, uh, social care work roles are predominantly held by women. It's really concerning that depending on what career path a woman chooses, she's likely, likely to face significant um, differences in earnings. But we do know what this is all down to, don't we? We know that it's down to a combination of there not being enough role models for women in higher paying jobs. And combined with there being barriers to advancement in those jobs for women. Even when women do find themselves in higher paying roles, they still tend to be employed at lower ranks of the occupational hierarchy um, rather than getting, getting the top job um, in most cases. But there are also a number of other factors as well. There's the high prevalence of part-time work amongst women compared to men. Many women have to do this by necessity, and then they face what is known as the wage penalty for motherhood. Speaking for myself, um, as soon as I became a mother, 
my first thought was, well, I have to work less because I just can't bear the thought of being at work five days a week and handing my infant over to a stranger for 10 to 12 hours a day. Fortunately, my bosses accepted my flexible working request, but despite how generous they've been in that way, I know that my salary has suffered each time I've taken maternity leave and given my flexible working pattern. Um, According to the OECD, the motherhood penalty amounts to about 7% wage reduction per child. And there is also evidence of a father premium. That is, there's actually a positive relationship between a man's wage and the number of children he has. And we know how to fix this stuff. We know that having paid paternity leave, like places like um, Iceland, where it's non-transferable, we know that this works. And that ultimately, that's that's what I'm speaking to. The fact that these issues exist at all and we know the solutions, but they're still prevalent, really boggles my mind. The UK uh, has implemented something called the Share Parental Leave Scheme. And really, it's it's rubbish. Um, on the face of it, it sounds great. Um, I actually thought I'd hit the jackpot when I was expecting my second child and the scheme had been embedded for a while. I thought, right, I'm ready to uh, take advantage of being able to share my leave <clears throat> with my husband. But as we inquired about it in our, with our various employers, we realised that it would mean my husband having to take his leave within the first five months of the baby's life. And that would then mean me going back to work um, in order to allow for that. That So if we're, if we're looking at, at it from a logistical, operational perspective, it means that I would go back to work within a month or two of having had the baby, um, which is completely unrealistic. Having gone through the process twice, I just, I can't do two months and then go back into work because you're fully lactating thing and I won't say which of our employees has this policy but essentially a lactating mother is expected to return to work within the first five months of her child's life in order to allow her partner to have a share in leave and this chaotic complicated and frankly unhelpful structure is why so few fathers have taken up shared parental leave so far Um, It's almost as though the government wants to make the idea of taking time off work to care for your newborn as a father as unattractive as possible by giving employers almost full discretion in how to implement the policy while still being able to say, well, we've legislated for for shared parental leave and, you know, we've got this scheme. Um, So, you know, that that ticks the box. but then there's also the the matter of there being really limited financial support within the scheme and what it offers in only offering a base of about £145 a week. You know, you're in a good place if your employer has an enhanced um, paternity or maternity package, but that's completely their choice. And the government know this. Um, it's been five years since the shared parental leave scheme was introduced. And between 2017 and 18, only 1% of new parents use the scheme. So there it is, cut and dry. The shared parental leave doesn't cut it. Um, however, improving it alone won't cut it also. We we do need to see an increased participation of fathers in childcare um, and reducing gender stereotyping in childcare and related household responsibilities. 
by placing shared parental leave within mandatory um, with mandatory maternity leave schemes, the government could really redress the imbalance and put a foot right in directly in indirectly improving the economic standing of millions of women who, once their partners have an incentive to stay home for some months after the baby is born, that they can then be allowed to return to their careers earlier than a year, earlier than, you know, another certain uh, period of time. That the state chooses to remain silent and put forward a paltry and inadequate scheme such as the share parental leave scheme seems to at best suggest and at worst confirm that women and the plight of women is not a key priority. In no more instance is this more more evident than in medicine. Inequalities in health experienced by women runs the gamut of entirely avoidable and unjust differences in healthcare provision. In medical research, there's normally an excuse used um, in overlooking women Um, in in research uh, studies, and that is hormonal interference. Not being used in biomedical research isn't like not being picked to join a cool clique at school or join a sports team. But by the way, I don't underestimate how bad those situations feel. And I'm sure the effects are extremely powerful because I've been there before. But Not being used in biomedical research means there are drugs and treatments out there which we have no way of knowing how well they work on women because women are so rarely used in the course of testing the viability of these drugs. And so as I hear, you know, and read about things like that, I'm just thinking, what about the intersectionalities of gender? Um, When when you have intersectionalities, surely the inequalities widen, widen only further And that is, of course, true. Since 2009, it's been widely reported. A little late, but at least it's come. It's been widely reported that black women in the UK and the US are much more likely to die from the complications surrounding pregnancy and childbirth than their white counterparts. The exact extent of this disparity runs between five to six times more likely for black women. And... It's it's just it's truly frightening. Um, and I, I came across a talk uh, entitled The New Social Contract for Black and Latinx Women um, held in New York. And in it, Kathy uh, Albisa, a co-founder of Partners for Dignity and Rights, defines the current situation for black and other non-white women so movingly. Here it is. A new social contract for us is just the basic assumptions that we all make about what we owe each other, what our rights are, what our democracy should look like, what our systems, how our systems should be defined. What are those assumptions that in a sense form the story we tell ourselves about who we are and the story we tell each other about who we are? Because we know we have never had a social contract that treats black and Latinx women with the dignity and the respect that we deserve, we need this conversation. What I love about what she says is that she makes it clear from the onset of this fantastic talk, which again, I implore you to listen to, um, that the situation for black women needs a lot of work. 
and then we hear from Farah Tanis in the same talk. Now she is a New York-based feminist activist and co-founder of the Black Women's Blueprint and of the Museum of Women's Resistance. She's amazing. And shortly after uh, we hear from Kathy, we hear from Farah in terms of going deeper to talk about where black um, women, particularly where we come from when it comes to the social contract, where what the, the what the social contract used to be for us in, within the context of uh, colonialism and other atrocities in history and i just love the way that she phrases this as well here it is but we we came into an old social contract that was failing a broken social contract but we're also coming from a broken social contract right when you think about the places from which we all come we're talking about black folks we're talking about latinx folks and we're we, we're not monolithic right we're all from different places and come from very different contexts but there is an exploitation and extortion of assets that we've all experienced and that we can all feel and that we can we've all lived indeed a new social contract is needed for womanhood and for all of its intersectionalities because the prevalence of gender inequality in society evidences that the social contract has been constructed in a way that excludes women and it calls into question the universality of political theory. In fact, in a paper entitled Feminism and the Social Contract, Chris Hendrickson says it's impossible to find a problematic free political theory when observed through a feminist lens. And this is definitely the case when it comes to social contract. As much as I'm a proponent for it, it has many weaknesses in this way. Its key theorists, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, upon whose words the Constitution of the United States is explicitly based, they made little effort to include women as a significant moral or political actor. And when they do give women attention, it's just often to be disparaging or to only acknowledge women for our reproductive functions. For instance, Thomas Hobbes, his view of the family in the context of a social contract was an absolutist dream, I would say. He wrote, the primary characteristic of society is the relationship between a father and his children. <laughs> in this framework, there's no mother beyond the act of reproduction. Going back to Carol Pateman, who I mentioned earlier, the author of The Sexual Contract, she reminds us that the troubling aspect of the Hobbesian family uh, depiction that I just talked about may not be its contractual form, but its absolutism. Just as in his political contract, where we, we give absolute rule and power to the sovereign or monarch, in his family contract, Hobbes also forces us to turn power absolutely to um, men and fathers. For John Locke, however, the family contract precedes political society and precedes therefore the social contract. For him, the primary purpose of this contract is twofold. One, to procreate, and two, to provide for those children who result from procreation. But given his use of the word conjugal, when it comes to the family setup, which reinforces that there is a relationship between husband and wife, but one that is conjugal and void of love and affection, the family, and particularly the role of the mother, 
with the fact within the family is almost entirely functional. And when it comes to the matter of disputes, then Locke says rules should always fall to the man's share as the abler and stronger of the two. So quite weakly, he makes no consideration for why, depending on the nature of the disagreement at hand, the, the decision could ever benefit largely the woman under any circumstance, simply because man is more able and stronger than the woman. For a theorist who readily seemed to, who so readily seemed committed to natu- natural rights, uh, he gives little protection and little rights to women in a way that is laughable and contradictory. Then for John Jack Rousseau, good old John Jack, for him, uh, though he quite uniquely at one point attributes a central role in the development of language to the nurturing relationship between mother and child, as a womanist, I would take this gladly, um, but then he's left us with some really extremely negative uh, written content about showing his disposition towards women. In fact, in much of his writing, he completely ignores the position of women in his view of nature. In um, his work on the social contract, it's titled, Rousseau describes women as domestic creatures who are best suited to tending the home and children. He goes to the extent of arguing that women at home distract citizens, that is men, from the common good and pushes them towards enjoying personal interests. There is something really unsettling, yet eye-opening about the way these theorists considered and or failed to consider women, which says a lot about the way things still are and the reluctance of government to equalise various aspects of society. I find it easier to let Rousseau and the others and their shortcomings on the matter of women slide. But I have a lot less understanding for modern theorists such as John Rawls, who in A Theory of Justice has been criticised for solely focusing on white middle class men. Even though he's a modern theorist, he continues to do that age-old thing of only focusing on one type of person. And similarly, it's really hard to let any modern government... Similarly, it's, it's really difficult to let any modern government get away with operating under the blatant guise of a social contract, which is based on, you know, the writings of Hobbes and Locke and others. And to have patriarchal, so obviously patriarchal leanings in their in their policy it's a complete farce and beckons the review of how our society is governed in the past three episodes we've seen that these men who wrote a theory based on men and for men particularly white men black people had no place in that and as i conclude this episode um i can now say that we've seen that nor were women ever considered in this in this contract in their exclusion of women the outcome is the genesis of misogyny again it beggars belief that society has subscribed to such a lopsided agreement at all but as we've established already and as has as have many people um i point to uh ellie may o'hagan's uh article uh from a couple of years ago for the guardian uh, which i'll link to she writes Men built this system. 
No wonder gender equality main, remains as far off as ever, with not a single country on track to, to achieve gender parity by 2030. It's clear that radical overhaul is required. And in the article, which is fantastically written, she uh, presents some interesting solutions and I'll leave it for you to check these out. But in conclusion, my top three suggestions would be for government to economise the work of motherhood and incorporate time spent on pay, any unpaid work um, into the GDP, particularly childcare and social care, which normally falls to women. Two, for government to come down much harder on employers who continue to discriminate against their female employees for uh, reasons such as time off to look after their children and flexible working requests. Um, and then finally, tackling domestic violence and sexual assault against women in a much more vigorous and effective way by lengthening sentences, sentences of men who attack and are abusive towards women. And that concludes my discussion on to whom does the social contract apply in terms of gender. It's clear it doesn't apply to women. So for recommendations this week, um, well, it's pretty easy. I think it would just be really great if you could go back through the episode and revisit the um, clips that I've, I've, I've shared. So starting with the, um, the new social contract uh, for women, for black women and Latinx women, um, the talk held um, in New York with Jacqueline E. Banks, who I referenced, and Kathy Albisa. Uh, please listen to that talk. I'll link it in the show notes. Then there's also the uh, Women's Hour uh, episode on equality in the home give that a listen it's really interesting some of the things that are discussed in that that I I didn't get a chance to touch on and then also the two TED talks are are really great as well um my my favorite is Marilyn's um about breastfeeding and GDP it's about 17 minutes long so she goes into more detail about how we can change public policy um to really uh, rectify and address this imbalance and then in terms of the written things that I've referenced in this episode, I think it's really important to uh, go and take a look at the work of Shiro Opinda, who's a black woman and, as I said, an academic and scholar and writes about um, the situation that black women find themselves in. And then also Carol Pateman's work, The Sexual Contract, which is um, an acclaimed body of work that assesses the social contract in regards to gender so it's really an extension of this episode um so i hope this has given you um a sort of an introduction into the idea of women in the social contract in society and our, our our place within it and what all that means and the implications of it i hope once again you've enjoyed exploring another area of the social contract with me Jacqueline Courtney and I hope that you'll join me again next week no breaks this time um next week to discuss more um I I I did say that I want to look at the social contract and who it applies to in in three ways and 
I, I think next week it will be time to, to do just that. But this time I'll leave it as a surprise as to through whose lens we're, we're going to look at. So um, just know that it would still be this question that we're talking through. So I hope you've enjoyed it as always. And please give us um, a follow on Twitter at Contract Today. You can feel free to follow me as well. I'm on Twitter as at Jack Courtney. As always, subscribe, share and support. Thank you for listening. Take care.